The News, a special report. The Hyatt Tragedy. Forty years ago this month, the unthinkable happened right here in Kansas City. Two skywalks collapsed inside the Hyatt Regency Hotel during a crowded dance. 114 people were killed, more than 200 were hurt, and the images are really hard to forget. Have you ever seen anything like this before? No, this is probably the worst disaster that's ever occurred in Kansas City. The KNBC 9 Chronicle, the Skywalk Tapes, takes us back to that night with the people who were there and lived to talk about it. You're used to seeing us on the evening news. This conversation is different. I'm Haley Harris, and this is KNBC 9 Storytellers. Today, I have KNBC 9 executive producer Kara Doyle joining me to, uh, to talk about this new documentary. As always, Kara, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is one of those stories, Kara, you and I know that if you are especially of a certain age, you grew up in the Kansas City region uh, and probably beyond, you know about this story, right? Yeah. I mean, I am not from the Kansas City area, but when I came here in 2005, it was one of the first things that I learned about uh, was this terrible tragedy that had happened down at the Hyatt. Um, you know, and the Cliff's Notes kind of version of this, you know, as you mentioned, is this hotel, this beautiful hotel opened up right in Crown Center in 1980. And one of the ways they wanted to celebrate was having these Friday night tea dances. And they had a ton of people there. And unfortunately, right in the middle of the dance, the second and fourth floor skywalks just came crashing down on top of people, people who were on the skywalks, people who were underneath the skywalks. Um, you know, it was just a really terrible, tragic scene, one that I think, you know, still it brings a lot of trauma to people in Kansas City. It does. And I think as we have, over the last few months, put together this documentary that is airing on July 13th on KMBC, and again on the 17th, is that I've learned is that the trauma of this is still very present. Yeah. I mean... The re one really interesting thing as we were talking to people and you know this happened 40 years ago and their memories are still so vivid and that's easy to understand when it's this is our, probably the most traumatic experience of their entire life but what really interest you know really was interesting to me was how those emotions are always there mm -hmm. they're always right under the surface and mm -hmm. it took them no time to put themselves right back into where they were and what they've been through. I mean, it's something that they obviously still carry with them. Um, we're going to talk about some of the people involved in this story that we have coming up, but um, KMBC has a really unique connection to this story. And for our listeners, can you tell us what that is? Yeah, we actually had a news crew at the Hyatt that night. When it happened, they were there. They were the only news crew there. Uh, Michael Mahoney was a feature reporter back in the early 80s, and he was there covering the tea dance. And he thought it was just going to be a nice little story. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it turned into something a whole lot bigger. But KMBC not only still has Mahoney on staff, you know, we tracked down the photographer who was with him that night, and we have video that no one else has, video that was used in the federal investigation to determine what happened that night. The camera was not rolling at the time of the actual collapse, but in the immediate moments after this collapse, um, this video, I think we've come to really view it as, as a piece of Kansas City history. Yeah, and you know that was something that really struck me when we started talking to Mahoney pretty in depth about this, was how quickly, in the midst of all of this chaos, he realized 
that this was a historic event, that his mind, while it was still, you know, relaying the absolute latest information to the newsroom and, and doing his due diligence at the scene, he also was there making sure that they were shooting as much as they could. And, you know, he, he understood the impact that this was going to have for, you know, years and years to come. Yeah, to have that that for, for, foresight, I think, in that moment is really incredible and uh, something that not everybody would be able to do. And his photojournalist, Dave Forstate, did the exact same thing. I mean, um, it, Dave told me that the moment that the skywalks collapsed in that in that hotel lobby, that he and Mahoney kind of looked at each other and had this 30 seconds of, is the whole building going to collapse? Are our lives in danger? They were standing on a mezzanine. Is the mezzanine going to collapse? Do we need to do we need to run from this building? What is going on? And it really took them a moment to kind of to you know assess the situation and then realize, uh, no, we are, we are witnesses to um, a horrible tragedy, and it is our responsibility to record it. And he immediately starts recording these images in kind of this one continuous shot. Uh, so you really get a, a complete sense of what was happening for better or worse in that moment. And there were a lot of heroes, you know, mm -hmm. people who stepped in to help, um, people who are, went above and beyond the call that absolutely. night. Absolutely. Um, and then of course there were a lot of people who, who lost loved ones and lost their lives too. Right. You know, Kansas City has always, in my experience, been a city where we really have a lot of pride in our city. We care about our neighbors, you know, most of the time. Um, <laughs> but I think that that really showed in the, in the immediate aftermath of this is, you know, you had a police officer who was a mile away um, on regular patrol and he starts getting calls and he makes his way there and is one of the first people there We've got an ER doctor who you know was getting off of a shift and ended up being Kind of the head of this kind of triage unit that they had to set up to help all of the injured people um, You know and that was something that was just so incredible is how many people were there to help even people who had just Witnessed this collapse or maybe were injured in it. You know, we have this incredible video of them trying to get dig through the rubble and pull people out and and it's just incredible the way people responded in that moment mm -hmm. 40 years uh is is a long time and many of these people uh involved have told their stories not everyone what what is the value in telling this story again and telling it now you know i think for a lot of people 40 years is a long time and there is a generation of people who maybe know the story, but don't know a lot of the details. Um, so the silver lining, I think, in all of this is that there's a new relevance um, to it. I think, especially with what has unfortunately happened in Surfside the last um, you know couple of weeks as they're looking for people there, that collapse, I think, is going to have a renewed sense of interest for what happened here because a lot of the parallels even just looking at the destruction at both scenes are so similar. It's it's chilling, um, the parallels between these two stories. And talking about that uh, partial condo collapse in Florida uh, is something that has been at the very front of my mind the last few weeks since that happened because, uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, aside from the obvious, that it is an accidental structural collapse, but or every indication is that it is an accidental structural collapse. Right. That building was built in 1981, the year that the Skywalks came down at the Hyatt. Isn't that crazy? It, it's, um, 
there were there were so many lessons learned in terms of you know building codes, engineering standards that came out of the Hyatt collapse, and something that you know the subjects in this told me time and time again was that they were willing to dredge up these painful memories and stories because they don't want it to ever happen again. They want people to remember this tragedy so that, you know, um, uh, building maintenance is not ignored, so that engineers take every detail of their job seriously because it was a small detail that failed at the Hyatt that night, um, an engineering error. So um, so that, that really rung um, true to me. Uh, and then seeing this again is just, is just awful. Yeah, no, it, it really is. And I have to give a lot of the people who are willing to speak with us about this again a lot of credit for doing it because to become an advocate after living through something like this mm-hmm. um you know is a is a very personal decision and i would have no bad thoughts about anyone who said i don't want to be involved it's it's too much it's too painful and you know we had a couple of people who were very unsure before mm-hmm. they were willing to sit down and talk to us. We had people saying, this is going to be the last time I ever do this because it's it's too much for yeah. me. Um, but for them to be willing to once again share their stories and hopefully make it a little bit better, hopefully get the information out there so people are paying a little more attention to these things so we're not continually reporting on that, I think that's probably the overall goal. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, Let's talk about a couple of the, uh, the, the folks we talked to, and uh, you've already mentioned one of them, and that is our colleague, Michael Mahoney. Had you ever heard Michael talk about this, uh, this story, this, this tragedy? You know, I had a little bit. When I first came here and I was producing the 5 o'clock show, um, it was, I think, the 30th anniversary, and I asked him to do something on set during the show to, to kind of talk about it. Um, But, you know, there's always sort of been this rumor around the newsroom that Mahoney Uh was very anti talking about the Skywalk. You know, you shouldn't talk to him about it. Um, And so when we approached him about this project, knowing, you know, he would be a very central figure of it to help tell the story. um, You know, there were I think there were a lot of nerves about how he would react. And his reaction was, absolutely. What do you need? I will help you with anything. Um, So it's been it's been really interesting to hear his perspective because he not only has the witness perspective he has the reporter perspective and knowledge because he followed the investigation the entire way through i heard this really distinct and completely out of place sound pop pop and what is that so i look up from the point where i believe this pop pop came it puts my eyes directly on the second floor walkway And what I see after I hear this is the second floor walkway begins to sag and then it begins to split. And as it splits, then the fourth floor walkway, because they were attached, comes pulling down on top of it. Both of them land on the floor and they land on top of hundreds of people. It's instantaneous. He is very much known for his political reporting uh, for, for the last several decades since this happened, really, uh, because he had initially started as a feature reporter in Kansas City, was at the Hyatt that night covering this tea dance, as it was called, uh, for a feature story. And then his career sort of drastically changes after what happened at the Hyatt. He starts going through um, 
the city records surrounding the building of this hotel and the engineering and the lawsuits that, that all followed the investigations. And that really sends him into uh, a lane of becoming a political reporter and government reporter. Um, and so, you know, I had always had this sort of outsider's view of, of all of this and, and had not talked to him at, at any length about it. But, you know, thinking, wow, this is a story that that um, really cemented his career. It changed the direction of his career. It was, you know, arguably the biggest single story he probably has ever covered in his career. After talking to him, I I, I think I, I layered in some more nuance to my, my view of this, you know, as a journalist and, and a reporter in thinking, uh, yes, this was an incredible story that he covered, at the same time, there's a certain burden, I think, that that carries with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's very careful not never to make the story about himself. But, um, you know, he and everyone in that room that night witnessed something very traumatic. Mm-hmm. And he lives with the knowledge of what he witnessed that night, what happened um, as that witness to history. And But he also takes his responsibility to... Um, telling this story and the history of it uh, very seriously as well. And so, uh, yes, this was a huge story for him, changed his career, but there's a flip side to that, that, that it, there, there has been a burden, uh, I think, to some extent. And he talks about that, having nightmares and that sort of thing following the Hyatt collapse. Yeah, and that's, I, I can only imagine, um, you know, what he and everyone else must have gone through following that. You know, back then as well, I think there was a little bit more of a stigma of going to therapy or counseling and and talking through some of these issues because I do remember Mahoney telling us pretty matter of fact, like, I'm a tough guy, I can get through it. Um, You know, I give him a lot of credit for that. Uh, I just don't, I want, it's it's a difficult thing and to carry it around for all those years, that's, it's gotta be. It's gotta be hard, and I think the way that he tries to just keep it focused on the actual story and not so much involve himself in it, you know, is maybe one way that he copes with that. Yeah. Well, and if you remember when we were interviewing him, and we sat down with Michael for three hours right. and interviewed him for this documentary, um, and of course our viewers will only end up seeing a fraction <laughs> of it. But you know, I, I asked him how did how did you think. Uh, taking the tough guy route served you and he he said kind kind of honestly that you know somebody else is going to have to be the judge of that mm-hmm. it's very interesting you talk about the mental health side of it and that really came up time and time again as we were interviewing first responders uh the police firefighters um even dr wackerly to some extent who was this emergency physician who kind of took uh, charge of the rescue effort the triage effort at the hyatt that night um, what resonated for you about their stories and, and what the last 40 years have been like for them? You know, one of, there were two people that we spoke with that, you know, really kind of stick with me. I, obviously, Dr. Wackerly has just an incredible story to tell. I mean, being the guy at the scene who had to make all of the decisions Um, who was really in a position of having to decide if people could be saved or if they couldn't. And having those hard conversations with people as they're begging to be pulled out of the rubble and him knowing that there was no way that these people were going to survive. 
that on a human level mm. is so gut-wrenching to think of being in that position. Um, I think it also shows what an incredible doctor he was um, and still is, that he is able to kind of set that aside and just focus on what needs to be done. He has a, a really nice, you know, moment where he does talk about there was, you know, 15, 30 seconds where he was kind of like overwhelmed and asking himself, what am I doing here? And why am I the one here? And then there just comes a point when you know that you, what you need to do is get in there and help people. And he was able to do that. And I remember this cloud of 15 seconds. I, 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 I just said, why am I here? What, what am I doing? Why am I here? and how am I gonna be able to help this? And I remember saying a little prayer and saying, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm here, let's get on with it. That to me was in incredible, um, knowing that just, when you see the video and the chaos and knowing that somebody could be that level-headed in that is amazing. And then the other person that really stuck with me was Vince Ortega, who has been a longtime uh, police officer with KCPD, and now he runs Combat um, and has been very involved in the community for you know over 40 years now. But he talked a lot about what it was like. He was the very first you know police officer on the scene, and walking into that lobby and and people almost kind of mobbing him to get help. And some of the things he saw as they were trying to. Uh, rescue people and he is one of the you know first responders who was very open about you know I had to go get help this this really took a toll on me and um, you know he's he spoke about knowing people who responded to the Hyatt and then the next day just never came back to work anymore mm -hmm. it was just too much I mean there's no way to accurately describe the massive impact and just the trauma um, that this brought on the entire city. So as I exited the car, I didn't see a lot. And then all of a sudden, they had revolving doors, but there was also side doors to the front. So I started going in the front, and then that's when I was just overwhelmed with people coming out, bloody, screaming. Of course, they saw the uniform, and they, they said, you got to help. You got to help. There's people inside that uh, are dying. And that just, when I said dying, I, it just kind of like, okay, I'm not, now I'm at the point, my whole mind is shifting, what am I gonna see in there? And what, and what those first responders will tell anyone is that in some, in some ways, a lot of them feel like there's no sense in telling about some of the terrible things they saw that night because nobody can understand. Yeah. Unless you were in that room, there is no way you can wrap your head around what happened. And there are people I know who were there who struggled, that, um, who in the aftermath, they told me marriages failed because of the psychological trauma that they were dealing with and not confronting. Um, there was alcoholism in one case I know. There, you know I mean, the, the things that they dealt with on a personal level and professionally after that, uh, none of us could ever understand. And, and, and I think it helps to also understand that in the early 80s in Kansas City, when they talked about mass casualty events, what they were training them for 
was like a, 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 a you know several car pileup on the highway, twelve people involved. Mm -hmm. That was their preparation for mass casualty event in, in Kansas City, and there had been a training session just the week before the Hyatt Skywalks collapsed, and. So these men and women come into this situation where you've got hundreds of people who are injured, uh, more than 100 who are ultimately going to die, and people trapped, and, and nobody knows. Nobody is, nobody is prepared. Nobody knows what to do to get a handle on how to attack this problem and save lives. And many of them did save lives. They helped people that night. But in their mind, what they have told me is that they felt they couldn't do enough and that there's guilt that surrounds that for them for some of them sure. I, I haven't obviously talked to all of the first responders who were there that night there were more than 600 but i have talked to a number of them and that um i have thought about that so much yeah it's it's very interesting how different things were i mean 1981 was not that long ago mm -mm. um but to think that there were no mass casualty, you know, training, or that it was so different from what we know today. Um, you know, I also know back at that time, it was not standard operating procedure for first responders to go to therapy or to be even given the option right. after going through something like this. You know, luckily, those those things have all, have all changed, have evolved to make us safer and, you know, to make sure that we're caring about the people who are out on the front lines for us. But, you know, even looking at the video, of it um and we have you know pretty horrific video um it's still hard to imagine what mm -hmm. it would be like to actually be there yeah the uh there were so many people who were children who lost parents loved ones um, and one of those those people is Brent Wright, and Brent has has um, shared his story over the years quite a few times. He was part of the Skywalk Memorial Foundation that ultimately built the memorial that now stands. Um, and and it was every time I've heard his story, um, it's just so compelling. He was a you know teenage guy straight out of high school. It was it was his summer break? He was getting ready to go to college. Uh, everything's looking up for him, and then his young mother dies in this in this horrible tragedy. What did you take away from Brent's story? You know, I think everyone's story is so compelling because you can connect with them and you can understand everything that they talk about and how it would feel. Um, to get the call that he got while working, you know, on a loading dock at Oak Park Mall. And, you know, his dad saying, you need to go get your sister and you need to come home. I need to come home right now. And this was the morning after it had happened and, you know, he knew what was coming. And just listening to him talk about that and the fact that he had to go down uh, to Crown Center to pick up his mom's car mm -hmm. that was still parked out there. Mm -hmm. And just... What, an, what a thing for an 18-year-old to have to experience. Um, and I think, you know, with Brent, he's, he's so composed. You know, today he's a lawyer, and so he's been through a lot of things. But, you know, he's one of the people where you can just tell those emotions. They are always right there under the surface. And, you know, how can they not? How can they not be when you're 18 years old and you lose your mom in a very 
traumatic way. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I was so grateful to him for is that he actually invited us to the cemetery with yeah. him and his family for Mother's Day. Um, they go out there and you know celebrate with with their mother and take pictures and you know it's incredible what people are going through and that they're willing to share that you know I think with the viewing audience just to hopefully let people understand just how big of a deal this was yeah later that morning my dad called me and he said uh, you know you need to go get your sister and you guys need to come home now and uh, So I did, picked her up, went home, and, and that's ultimately where we uh, heard what had happened. So hard to believe 40 years later, it's still upsetting. I'm so thankful that Brent has been so willing through the years to be vulnerable, to tell his story, to, to let himself be emotional in the telling of that story because I think it just hits home how the shockwaves of this event are still resonating 40 years later. And that while some people may have forgotten about this or moved on, um, it is a it is something that affects people in our city every single day still. Yeah. And I think it is so important that we remember those people and those lives who are perpetually affected by, by this event. What is something that that you learned in the production of this new documentary? You know, I definitely learned a lot more about the collapse and the investigation. I am not lying when I say I had a very cursory knowledge, you know, of what happened. Um, But once we actually got into doing interviews with the people who were there, what really struck me was how people who experienced the exact same event can remember them and, and react to them so differently. You know, we actually had people say, it, I remember one guy, Mark Williams, I believe, saying, you know, this was like the best thing that ended up happening to me. Was that Mark? It was Mark. And and he was trapped in the rubble longer than anybody else. Last man pulled out alive. Yeah. And, you know, that is incredible. And then you will have, you know, people like Sally Firestone, who is the most injured survivor and is now, you know, a quadriplegic. And she just says she can't remember anything. She can't remember anything for 10 days after it happened. Um, You know, even talking with Mahoney and um, his photographer, Dave Forstate, they remember details um, differently. They do. Um, And so that was just very interesting how even though it was this mass event that happened to hundreds of people at the same time, the personal experiences were so very different. That, that was a big takeaway for me, too, in how I, I've just become really fascinated by, and I've seen this at other times in my career and in other stories, um, especially about traumatic events, but how people remember the same thing differently. Mm-hmm. And the sort, of chal- the sort of unique challenge that arises in, how, in trying to tell that story when people remember an event or process an event differently, and how do I tell this accurately while also um, reflecting their unique perspectives. Um, it, it's, an, it's, um, it's just fascinating how the mind works, I think, in an event 
like that. And, you know, I'm not a, a psychologist or a scientist <laughs> in any way, but I, I would I would love to, to know more uh, to, to learn more maybe about about what the, what what, it, what in the brain chemistry is happening in a moment like that. Mm -hmm and how your mind works. Um, and then, of course, every single time I, I do a story about a tough subject, just the resilience of the human spirit. Yes. And even those people who have, for the last 40 years, really struggled, mm -hmm. um, the ways that they have carried on, uh, the ways that their families have helped them and carried on with them, and... Uh, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, I don't know how I would, how I would be able to survive something like that. And I think that each of us really probably, it, it says a lot about just your will to survive, your will to live. Um, and I, I think all of us probably have the capability uh, to come out of something tragic like that um, and just really make the best of your life moving forward. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there were a lot of lessons, obviously. But, um, but yeah, this one is, uh, is a story like no other I think we've ever told. No. And I think luckily, you know, Kansas City is the only place where this has significantly happened, you know, um, prior to what's happened down in Florida, obviously. Uh, but the story is, it's, it's just, it's so incredible. And, you know, I, I really can't do it justice. <laughs> right. Here. Right. Uh, talking about it but just hearing the perspectives from everyone you know one person that we talked to it's probably the person who the majority of people would remember from the Hyatt and that is Dalton Grant mm -hmm. who you know was the 11 year old boy that was pulled from the rubble and you know he was the one who kind of made the national headlines you know right out of it because it was you know a little source of hope and in, in the midst of all of this tragedy and he's one person who really kind of went on with his life in a, in a totally different way, moving to LA, you know, he became a yoga instructor. He's a songwriter. He's written a song for Demi Lovato. And when he told me that, I was like, what? <laughs> um, you know, he's about to become a father. I mean, he's really kind of embraced his life moving forward. And when he talks about it, you know, he talks about it in a very um, almost abstract way. Uh, but he was able to overcome that and, and kind of leave, lead a life that, of his choosing now. But, you know, Dalton was also, I think, the person who was the most nervous about sharing his story and kind of delving back into it all of these years later. And, you know, that was something, you know, for you, Haley, talking to these people about these terrible, terrible moments in their lives, you know, how do you even approach that and have those conversations. Yeah, Dalton was someone who I think has told his story time at times over, uh, over the years. I think he said the last time he talked was maybe even 20 years ago. And I think that his story was not always handled responsibly mm -hmm. by the people who were tasked with telling it, which is really unfortunate. And so I think he was apprehensive to tell it again. And you know, early in my career, this was the thing that I hated doing most, right, is going to somebody who's been through something tough, lost a loved one or whatever, and um, asking them to tell their story because we all have stories and our stories are precious to us. And you only tell them to certain people mm -hmm. and under certain circumstances. And um, I think that I 
have had to come to terms with with respecting the power of the story and understanding that we all want to tell our stories and under what circumstances would somebody like Dalton be willing to tell a story uh, that he's told time and time again and uh, what does he get out of telling that story again so it's really kind of the way I try to approach it and and I just level with people say like listen (laughs) I know that this is probably one of the most traumatic events if not the most traumatic event in your life I know you don't want to talk about it here's what I'm trying to do with this documentary here's our purpose you know we're not doing this to show gratuitous um, uh, circumstances or or to be sensational uh, in in our storytelling about this terrible tragedy you know we want people to learn something we want people to remember uh, honor the victims honor the first responders and make sure that that this maybe doesn't happen again somebody who sees this walks away into the world uh to do something that could could prevent this from happening again and i think when you tell people where you're coming from like that they they respect that and even the people who uh there was one individual who was incredibly apprehensive to tell their story and um you know ultimately you know we we did an interview but they really didn't want to talk about much yeah um i think even people like that can at least respect what we're trying to do even if they're not in a place where they want to talk and by gosh i am not going to pressure anybody to talk about about something like this but i think that there are a lot of people out there who do want to tell the story even though it's a story that is difficult for them to tell because they they recognize the history of it and um and the and the sort of takeaways from it yeah well and I and I have to give you a lot of credit for that because when we started this project you know and we had a quick deadline I think we started this in like March March yeah. right um so to put together an hour-long documentary in four months um is quite an undertaking while you know also you know you're still anchoring the five and the nine and we're <laughs> reporting and doing everything else um but the amount of people that you were able to track down and then the amount of people who were so willing to tell their stories, um, you know, I have to give you a lot of kudos for that because I never anticipated getting so many people wanting to be involved as we did. And I think it really helped us provide a very well-rounded, you know, kind of telling from all these different perspectives mm-hmm. of what happened and what the aftermath was. and all the way through the investigation and even, you know, now how people are still kind of struggling with it. Uh, And, you know, we have a little memorial down in downtown Kansas City. And, you know, it's a memorial that not a lot of people pay attention to, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I could think of about, you know, a dozen other people I'd like to interview. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Never enough time. Never enough time. But yeah, I I think that, um, you know, I I, we went back through our old footage first and I, I identified some stories in people who we had covered in 1981 and said, I want to find that person. What's happened to them in the last 40 years? Um, and so just that kind of curiosity about that kind of kind of led us to some really interesting stories and mm-hmm. places. And so it was really exciting. Um, anybody else that we, you know, I mean, obviously, there's tons of people we can talk about here. Uh, real quickly, uh, the interesting connection between, there was a mariachi band there that night. Yes. 
this was something else that I learned through the production of this chronicle. Uh, there was a mariachi band at the Hyatt that night. They were not playing at the tea dance. They were going to play um, at a different event. And it was Mariachi Estrella from Topeka. And they were there, and as they were walking through the hotel, you know, they, they took some time. They were standing on the skywalks. Unfortunately, four of their members um, were killed when the collapse happened. Uh, the band leader, Teresa Cuevas, she was buried in the rubble. She was found, uh, she was saying prayers in Spanish. And her mm. granddaughters say that is how rescuers were able to find her. And that, you know, her, their grandmother, she lived to be 93 years old. So she lived a, quite a long time after this happened. Um, and they said, she, you know, she didn't talk about it too much. She would talk about um, how she prayed in the rubble and how that brought her comfort and that that was how they found her. And they said she kind of walked with a limp a little bit because she had some injuries to, you know, her, her legs or her back or maybe both. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, more than anything, I mean, her story was really just one of, of overcoming. When we sat down and spoke with two of her granddaughters who actually are in the band Maria the Mexican, which, um, you know, has quite a following here yes. in Kansas City, uh, talking about her and all of their memories were just them as children, obviously born after this had happened, um, and doing performances with their grandma and how much she loved mariachi music and and use that really as her way to connect with people. And it was so much so, you know, there is a statue to them, to the to the band in Topeka, and they're planning to build one or put up one for um, Teresa, hopefully later this year. You know, just very unique, all of the different elements, all of the different people that happened to be there that night and all the connections. I mean, yeah. we hear people say, you were either at the Hyatt or you knew somebody at the Hyatt that night. That was one thing people kept saying. It affected everybody. And I feel like that's really, it's really true. You can't bring up the Hyatt collapse without somebody telling you their own personal connection to it. Uh, ever since we started, yeah, I guess, for lack of a better word, publicizing, that we are airing this documentary uh, next week at the time of this recording, uh, I have had nothing, and I think our station has had nothing but people reaching out to say, hey, I lost my parents that night, or my sister worked as a hostess in the restaurant yeah. that night, or, you know, everybody, I have I cannot tell you how many people I've had reach out to say their connection to yeah. this story. It, it really is like the whole of Kansas City knew somebody basically that was there. Right. And that adds a little extra pressure on us <laughs> for making sure we did it right. But, you know, I will say, I, I do think we did our absolute best to be as compassionate and, and really tell these people stories. That's one thing when we do chronicles and one thing that I love just about working at KMBC 9 is the focus on the person and the personal stories and being able to tell the stories in this kind of way uh, is something that wouldn't have been possible you know, here five or ten years ago, but now that we're, we've started this kind of undertaking, it's really allowing us to connect with people across Kansas City in a totally different way. And that's that's amazing. And I hope I hope that everyone watches it and, and feels that we did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope that the people who who see it um, can appreciate 
uh, the stories that, that people people shared with us. Yes, absolutely. KMBC 9 Chronicle, the Skywalk Tapes, airs July 13th at 9 p.m. on KMBC, and on July 17th, the 40th anniversary of the tragedy at 8 p.m. on KCWE. Kara, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. <laughs>